We're going to look at John 16, 4 through 7. John 16, the end of verse 4 through verse 7. And this is the word of Almighty God. Jesus speaking says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Pray with me, friends. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And our prayer, as we sang, be glorified today. But also, Lord, our prayer is, help us to see you and know you in your word. Inspire, empower the preaching of your word that we might actually hear your voice in your clearly written revelation. Change our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. How many of you remember learning to ride a bicycle? Amen. I remember it. I remember it well. I remember it vividly. You're like, how does the blind guy ride a bicycle? I could see more when I was a child. Don't, don't do that. I was a little guy. I had a bike. I'm certain it was a Huffy. Anybody have one of those when you were a kid? From Walmart? Amen. Amen for Walmart. And what we did is we rode our bikes, me and my brothers, at my granddad's house more than anything. See, granddad had a two-car-wide carport. In the Midwest, you didn't have garages. You just put a roof over some concrete and you were good. And it was on the south side of the house and... The concrete base of this carport, it was so smooth. It was so easy to navigate. And there's a little apron down on the west side of the carport that sloped down into the driveway, into the yard. And we would ride in circles around that carport for hours. My, my grandparents always used to say, I really would love to know how many miles have been ridden on bicycles in the circles around our carport. That was just how it was. Some days we would ride the bikes, you know, around the house in the yard. I mean, that was a great way for kids to spend a summer afternoon. Now, my bike, as I was learning to ride, didn't go well in the yard. I had to stay on the carport more than go in the yard. Anybody want to guess why my bike, when I was learning to ride, did not go well in the yard? Had training wheels. Man, training wheels are great for keeping you upright, but they stink in the grass. (laughs) Well, one day, I'm the youngest of three. My brothers are five and six years older than me. One day, we decided, and by we, I mean my older brothers, that it was time for me to learn to ride without my training wheels. So they got the tools and the training wheels came off. And I remember as a little guy thinking this may not necessarily be the best of ideas. My training wheels were what kept me from having some pretty painful spills. But my brothers assured me 
if I would just pedal like normal, I'd be just fine. Well, the problem was getting me started because I was scared and my brothers couldn't convince me just to go on my own and every time I budged, I was afraid the bike was going to fall over and I put my feet down. So my oldest brother, with deep concern for my feelings, I'm sure, took me and my bike into the yard to the top of a hill. And he assured me, you're going to be fine. And then gave me a shove. (laughs) Off I went, hurtling down the hill, certain of my own rapidly approaching death in a painful crash. And you know what happened? I pedaled. And you know what happened? I rode. And I was free. And from that day forward, I never missed my training wheels again. Sometimes I crashed. Sometimes I didn't. But I never wanted the wheels attached to the back of my bike again. In the text that we're about to study for this morning, Jesus is getting ready to set the disciples free. But they don't necessarily understand it yet. He's taken off their training wheels. He's leading them to the hill. He's about to tell them, y'all better start pedaling. For the past three years, they've been dependent on Jesus's constant, personal, physical presence. That presence is comforting. That presence is reassuring. Don't you think you'd be comforted by being in the physical presence of Jesus? But, To be honest with you, that presence was also a little restrictive. The disciples needed to get ready for the global plan God has for the coming of his kingdom. And that plan is about to get started, but it's going to get started with the departure of Jesus from this world. God wants us to learn from this conversation with Jesus and his followers. He wants us to see that we too are set free through the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. God wants us to treasure the Holy Spirit's coming and his ministry. So today, we're going to follow the teaching of Jesus and we're going to seek to learn things God has for us. Now, originally, I planned that we would preach verses four through seven as point number one of a sermon that was going to go from four to 15. And I didn't make it. So point one became today's message. Everything that we're going to see today comes out of what was going to be the point that you were going to start with, which was this. Believe in the goodness of Jesus's departure. You'll have things to write down, but that's the point. You and I and the disciples needed to believe that it's good for Jesus to go. Now, in context, we're with Jesus, we're with the disciples, and it's between the time of the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. We might still be in the upper room. Maybe they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem And Jesus is just continuing to talk to them as they walk down the street. But either way, 
Jesus is preparing the disciples for the fact that he's about to be killed, to rise from the dead, to spend 40 days with them after the resurrection, and then to return to his place in glory. He's going to sit on the throne of the universe in heaven. And the disciples, they are confused, they're troubled, they're having a tough time taking it in. Most recently, Jesus promised his disciples from the end of 15 to the beginning of 16 that the world is going to hate them because of him. And that hatred is going to lead to their persecution. Now, here we get into our passage. At the end of verse 4, Jesus lets the disciples know he hasn't spoken to them so clearly, so darkly before, because for the last three years, he was right there with him. He was the target of the world's hatred, not the disciples. But things are about to change. Now the disciples need to be ready. Well, how are things going to change? Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is going to the grave. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Jesus is going to return to his father. Those things are going to happen very soon to the disciples' point of view. Over the next hours, over the next days, not the next few years. It's coming right now. And when Jesus returns to his father alive to be seated on the throne of the universe... Jesus will no longer be physically walking visibly beside his disciples. Unlike before, back in chapters 13 and 14, the disciples, they don't even ask Jesus a question here. And Jesus even points it out in verse 6. You guys aren't even asking me where I'm going anymore. By the way, it's not because they understand it. They don't get it yet. But they're sad. They're disappointed. They're confused. They don't know what to expect. They certainly don't know what questions they need to start asking. Their thoughts have gone inward. The faithful 11 disciples, they're worried about what's going to happen to them. How are they going to go on if Jesus really does leave them? And Jesus points out to these guys, I know the sorrow that fills your hearts. I know it. I know you're sad. But then he gives the disappointed disciples some assurance in verse 7. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now just pause for a second and think like human beings for a second. Does that make sense to you? If you're sitting there with Jesus the God-man, and he says, it will be better for you if I leave. What do you think? No way. Can you imagine Jesus saying to you? You've been with him for three years. You've seen him do incredible miracles. You know, guys, it'll be better for you if I leave you by yourself. You would think he'd lost it. You gotta be kidding me. How could it be better for me if you leave? Now add to that the disappointment you would feel, the disappointment of losing a friend. The fact is, some of the disciples still were confused about the mission of Jesus. I mean, it was just this past week 
that the disciples asked Jesus, hey, when are you going to arrive as the conquering king? Right? Matthew 24, verse 3, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus told his followers, guys, just so you know, the temple's going to be broken down. And that spurred the disciples to ask Jesus about, well, when are you going to come uh, formally ruling as a king? When will be your parousia? When will you arrive as the promised king, the Christ, the Messiah, the ruler of the world? These guys had walked with disciples. These disciples had walked with Jesus for three years. Jesus had told them he was going to die. They still couldn't fathom that Jesus, whom they knew to be the Christ, they couldn't fathom how Jesus could come and not just conquer the world right then. So when Jesus says, it's better for you that I leave, they were troubled. How could it possibly be better for Jesus to leave? How could it possibly be better for Jesus not to immediately set up his earthly kingdom? Now, before we see the answer, let's just pause for a second and remember who's talking. Jesus is the Son of God. He is perfect. His words are always true all the time. So Jesus doesn't lie. He's never wrong. If Jesus says it's better for the disciples, for him to depart the world, it is truly better. If Jesus says to you, It's better for you to live in a world where I'm not physically present right now. It is truly better. So why is it good that Jesus will leave the disciples? Here's what Jesus says in verse 7. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper, you guys know who the helper is? It's the Holy Spirit. The helper is a title Jesus gives for God's Holy Spirit. If Jesus does not depart from the disciples, leaving them alone on the earth, he cannot send the Holy Spirit to them. If he does leave them behind, he can and will send God's Spirit to them to be their helper. And this, according to Jesus, is a better thing for them than if he remained with them and kept things just as they were. Which should bring up Two questions in your mind. Two major questions. First, why can Jesus not send the Holy Spirit unless he leaves the disciples? And second, why is the presence of the Holy Spirit better for the disciples than the physical presence of Jesus? Those seem like logical questions, don't they? One of you thinks so. Any of the rest of you think those seem like sensible questions? Otherwise, we should just go home. Okay, I was worried. Let's try to answer those questions. So the first big question, why can Jesus not send the Spirit unless he leaves the disciples? Jesus doesn't actually tell you right here. We're going to have to think about it from the teaching of Scripture regarding the Holy Spirit, but we'll get there. But before we look at the right answer, let me tell you the wrong answer. There's a wrong answer that many people in history have leapt to, and we want to be sure to expose it and avoid it. 
Some people in history, this is the wrong answer. Don't write this down as if it's your answer. This is the wrong answer. Some people in history have argued that Jesus could not remain and send the Holy Spirit because Jesus cannot minister with the Spirit present. Another way some people argue this is to say, Jesus had to leave that he might transform and come back as the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit don't exist at the same time. Those two answers are one thought, by the way. The thought is incorrect. It is heresy. If you ever hear somebody tell you that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same person in different forms, realize it's the ancient heresy called modalism. God existing in different modes. Also called Sibelianism, if you're a real nerd. The early church condemned it centuries ago. Modalism denies the Trinity... One God, eternally three persons. And instead, it says that the Father is the God of the Old Testament who became Jesus, who later became the Spirit. Do you guys know that people still teach that today? You will find it among charismatic groups like the Oneness Pentecostals. If you know somebody that's part of that movement, you will probably hear them tell you, if you talk to them, that there is no such thing as the Trinity. The Father became the Son, became the Spirit. But let's ask the question, is that true? Let's just consider this question. Is it true that we never see Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the same place at the same time? Is this a situation like we would see with Clark Kent and Superman? Clark, how do you always manage to be gone when Superman's here? Well, just think back to the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized... The Bible tells us what? God the Father spoke from heaven. The Spirit of God descended visibly from heaven and remained on Jesus. So in one picture in the New Testament, God the Son is in the river. God the Father is speaking from heaven. God the Holy Spirit is coming down to rest on Jesus. So yes, Jesus can exist where the Spirit is. This is not Clark Kent sneaking off to change into the next costume. Jesus is not transformed into the Spirit. So then, why can Jesus not send the Spirit without leaving? Let's talk about the Old Testament for a little bit. In the Old Testament, God made the same promise numerous times. God was going to do a very special thing in the future of Israel. God promised the people who were under his Old Testament, his Old Covenant, that a new covenant would come. And during the time of that new covenant, people are going to relate to God in a different way than maybe ever before. Jeremiah 31 
31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's a familiar passage to you, isn't it? What will the time of the new covenant look like? How will people from all stations of life know the Lord? How will they have the law of God written upon their hearts? Well, Joel 2, 28 and 29 says this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit so in the last days meaning when the new covenant comes God says he's going to pour out his spirit on all kinds of people People from all nationalities, people of all social classes, men and women will have the Spirit of God upon them, remaining with them. In Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, we hear more about the Spirit in the New Covenant. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, in the age of the new covenant, the Spirit of God will be present with the people of God to change their lives. During the time of the old covenant, God doesn't speak about giving people new hearts whenever they enter the covenant people. But in the new covenant, the people get a brand new heart. And with that new heart comes entry into the new covenant. With their entry into the new covenant, they get a new heart. And with their entry into the new covenant, they have the presence of the Spirit of God indwelling his people. Old covenant, you can be God's people, but you may or may not have the Holy Spirit around you. New covenant, you have a new heart given you and the Spirit of God within you. In Hebrews 8, colon, 8, 6, I just read the colon from my pronunciation right there. I'm very, very sleepy. Uh, 
shut up. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that here before. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever done that in my life before. In Hebrews 8, colon 6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, much, is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Without, without trying to do a whole covenant theology this morning, though I am tempted, can we all agree the new covenant's better than the old covenant? Yes. Something about the people of God being changed Forgiven, granted the Spirit of God personally, it's better than the old system. You read John's Gospel, Jesus is all the time being contrasted with things like Old Testament ceremonial water jars, the temple itself, the Jewish holy days. Jesus is is greater than them. They all point to Jesus, but Jesus is the fulfillment of what they promise. Jesus is the one who brings the new covenant, the better covenant. Now, remember this. We're trying at this point to understand why is it necessary for Jesus to depart his disciples in order for him to send the Spirit? We know the old covenant promises that the Spirit's coming. That's part of the new covenant. So here's the one question you need that'll make this all make sense. How is the new covenant put in place? And Jesus told his disciples earlier that evening, Luke 22, 19 to 20, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant comes into being in a similar way to the old covenant with the shedding of blood. The difference is this. This time, for the new covenant to come, it is Jesus' blood that is required to bring it about. God cannot inaugurate the new covenant without making a once and for all time atonement for the sins of his people. During the old covenant, God promised the new was coming. God's people trusted God. They made sacrifices that pointed to the future coming sacrifice, to a time when God would make one sacrifice that would actually satisfy his demand for justice. But before the new covenant can come, before the new covenant is in place, the actual sacrifice that covers our sins had to be made. The price for sins had to be paid. And this time, there's no symbolic sacrifice that will do. The blood of an infinitely perfect, infinitely valuable sacrifice must be shed to pay the infinite price for the sins of God's chosen children. So why did Jesus have to leave before the Spirit could come? 
Jesus was going to the cross to pay for our sins. And after this, his work would be done. The Father would glorify Jesus. He would, Jesus would rise from the grave. And the Father would, would carry him to heaven and seat him alive on the throne of the universe. And once that was all completed, then it's appropriate for God to give his followers the benefits of living under the new covenant. And those benefits include the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had to leave to finish his work so that the Spirit could come to his people. Does it make sense to you why Jesus had to go before he could send the Spirit? Makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? Now, for the second big question, why is it better for the disciples and for you and for me that Jesus departed? Now, Part of that's pretty darn obvious from what we just said, right? If you don't have Jesus depart, you don't get saved. So that's better. But there are more answers than that, and they're good answers. I'm going to give you five. But before we answer, I want you to see why this question needs an answer again. Jesus says to you, it's better for you if he's not physically here. If you were a disciple... Back then, you would have found that just crazy, hard to believe. How could it be better for you not to have Jesus present with you? How could the coming of the Spirit make it better not to have Jesus physically present? That seems really strange. And even today, and even today, we get caught up in thinking that, oh, it must be harder for me and my faith than for the disciples. Many of us think that, oh, following good would be so much easier if we were just around during the days of Jesus to see him, shake his hand, talk with him, hear his voice, to watch the miracles take place. Man, I would have a lot of faith then, right? And if you're not careful, you will forget the Holy Spirit. And if you're not careful, you will begin to think that the Holy Spirit is not as good. And y'all, that's wrong. Why is it better for Jesus to depart for the Spirit to be present? Here's the five reasons I'll give you. They'll come quick, though I could give you a lot more. The Spirit lives inside believers, not simply with believers. The Spirit lives with all believers, not simply some believers. We'll get these again if you're stressing about writing. The presence of the Spirit means that Christ's atoning work is complete The presence of the Spirit means that we are under God's new covenant. And the Spirit performs a ministry that is different than Christ's. First, the Spirit lives inside believers, not simply with believers. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. How close do you want your God to be to you? Do you want a God who sits across the table? Do you want a God who sits in the chair next to you? That's how close Jesus incarnate was to his disciples. But y'all, there's something better than having God across the table. 
And that is to have God indwelling you, living within you. The Spirit of God lives closer to believers than Jesus lived to his closest friends. Since the Spirit living in believers is possible because Jesus departed, it is better for us that Jesus did what he did because we get God inside our lives. If you don't think that's good, you're missing something big. Two, the Spirit lives with all believers, not simply some believers. Ephesians 1.13 Paul says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who? All of you. If you are a believer, you are sealed with, you are marked with, you are indwelled by God's promised Holy Spirit. Listen to me. There's no separation between you and God anymore once you know Jesus. The Spirit doesn't come and go. Remember the Old Testament? King Saul had the Spirit, lost the Spirit. The Spirit came upon King David sometimes, wasn't quite as close other times. Samson had the Spirit till he got a haircut. Jesus lived with his disciples, right? Right? But there were times when Jesus and the disciples were separated, right? When Jesus said, you guys go on out in the boat and I'll stay on shore here to pray, he was separated from them. When Jesus went up the mountain and took only three of the 12 for the transfiguration, some were separated. When Jesus was physically present in the world, only certain people could be around Jesus at certain points of time. But with the Holy Spirit, All believers are with God at all times, never, ever left alone. And that's better. Third, the presence of the Spirit means that Christ's atoning work is complete. Acts 1, verses 3 through 5, he presented himself, that's Jesus, He puts himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It was after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that the Spirit of God came upon the world, came to believers. The resurrection of Jesus is a sign for us that Jesus' work truly made actual atonement for our sins. The reason you can know if you trust Jesus that you're forgiven is this, Jesus rose from the grave. If Jesus is in the tomb, you're not forgiven. If Jesus is out of the tomb and you trust in him, you are forgiven. This is why God tells us, if we've got his spirit in us, we know we are truly forgiven. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. So you see, 
It's better for you that the Spirit comes because the Spirit's coming tells you that the work of Jesus is done. Our sins are paid for in full and we have the hope of eternal life in Jesus. Fourth, the presence of Jesus means that we are under God's new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6. Speaking of God, he has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We've touched this already, but I just want you to remember it. We are under the new covenant, not the old covenant. And this is very good news. We don't make sacrifices for sins anymore. We don't try to pay God back for our sins because you can't do it. The sacrifice for our sins was made one time, once for all. And we have the promises of the blessing of the new covenant. And that is better. Fifth, the spirit performs a ministry that's different than the ministry of Jesus. Not at odds with, but different with. In John 16, 8 to 15, the next verses that we would study if I ever finished this sermon. And when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus said, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is a glorious promise of just some of the things that the Holy Spirit will do. People are going to be convicted of their sin. They're going to repent. They're going to be saved because the Holy Spirit is in the world with us. The Holy Scriptures are perfectly written down, inspired because of the presence of the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ is going to be glorified in our lives because of the presence of the Spirit. Lord willing, we're going to study those things in two weeks. But for now... Know this, the Spirit of God has a different job than Jesus had. The Spirit of God did not die for you. Jesus died for you. The Father did not die for you. Jesus died for you. The Spirit has a different job, but it's perfectly in keeping with the eternal plan of God. And the job of the Spirit needs to be done, and that's why it's better for you and better for me that we live in the age that the Spirit is with the people of God. So Christians... Do you treasure the presence of the Holy Spirit of God? We've seen this morning that in God's word, God's promise of God's spirit is the greatest promise you could get. Do you love it? Do you tremble to think that the spirit of God almighty lives inside of you? Do you rejoice to think that God chose to give you his personal presence forever? You find joy in what it means that the Spirit of God is present, namely that you are under the new covenant and that the work of Christ on your behalf is done. You don't need your sins to be paid for anymore. It's over. It's finished. Now be careful. 
Don't let yourself get bogged down in the weird self-questioning, self-pity of wondering whether you feel the presence of the Spirit enough. I'm guessing a handful of you just went down that road. But what if I don't feel Him? What if, what if, I'm, not, what if I'm not sensing the Spirit in the right way? Don't fear that. Don't be afraid you don't have the Spirit of God because your life's not full of the miraculous sign gifts of the first century. That's not the test. The Spirit of God is not absent if you can't feel Him. That's not how it works. You ever... You ever get convicted of sin and feel like you should repent? What do you think? You ever have that happen? You ever read the Bible or hear a sermon and understand God better? You ever have the desire to please the God who made you? Have you placed your trust in Jesus for your salvation? If so, the Spirit of God is with you. And you don't need some sort of radical charismatic experience to prove it. So take that pressure off your shoulders. But what if you don't know God and you're here today or you're hearing my voice somewhere else? The Spirit of God calls on you to turn from your sin and entrust your soul to Jesus right here, right now. You have no other hope. You can be forgiven. How? Do you know that you've sinned before God? Do you know that you need salvation? Do you know that Jesus is your only hope? If so, that's the work of God's Spirit. So I urge you, don't fight with God. Turn from your sin. And believe in Jesus for salvation today. That's all there is to it. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for your grace. I'm grateful for your mercy. I'm grateful for the finished work of your son. And I'm grateful for your promised Holy Spirit. Some days, Lord, it seems like, yes, I can just tell the Spirit of God's with me. Some days I have no clue. But I thank you, God, that my faith and my position before you has nothing to do with my feelings. It has everything to do with your faithfulness and your promise. I do pray that we'd be a church filled with your spirit, submitted to the leading of your spirit, obedient to your holy word. And I pray most of all right now that this will be a church full of people who are deeply, deeply grateful that Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave and sent the spirit that we might please you. Make us pleasing to you. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.